Before our scripture is read this morning, um, I wanted to provide some context. So there's two passages. The first comes from Isaiah 42 and the second from Ephesians 2. The passage in Isaiah 42, God is addressing his servant through whom he will bring about the salvation of the world. What the nation of Israel had failed to do in that it was called to serve as a light to the Gentiles, God would fulfill through this servant. And now um, we're addressed by the Apostle Paul in the letter to the Ephesians. And he tells how uh, both they and us, um, most of us not being of Jewish descent, um, are nevertheless not far from being included in God's covenant through God's gift of grace that's offered in Jesus Christ. We who were once far off and separated from God have been brought near and have been included in the family of God uh, as the people of God. And so let us hear this reading of God's word and open our hearts and minds and wills to what God might say to us. The scripture reading this morning is Isaiah 42, 5 to 7, from the New International Version Bible, and Ephesians 2, 11 to 13, from the Common English Bible. From the prophet Isaiah, this is what God the Lord says, the creator of heavens, who stretches them out, who spreads out the earth with all that springs from it who gives breath to its people and life to those who walk on it. I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness. I will take your hand. I will keep you and will make you to be a covenant for the people and a light for the Gentiles, to open eyes that are blind, to free captives from prison, and to release from the dungeon those who sit in darkness. From Paul's letter to the Ephesians. So remember that once you were Gentiles by physical descent, who were called uncircumcised by Jews who were physically circumcised. At that time, you were without Christ. You were aliens rather than citizens of Israel and strangers to the covenant of God's promise. In this world, you had no hope and no God. And now, thanks to Christ Jesus, you who were once so far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. The word of the Lord. So through this sermon series of understanding what it means that God forms a covenant with the people of Israel and what the extent of that covenant means for all the rest of us. We've been, we've been considering that these past few weeks. And uh, today is no different. Covenant is all about relationship, a relationship that God wants with us. And the same relationship that's depicted in the opening chapters of the book of Genesis but that relationship got broken off. And so 
God calls Abraham in order to, to, through one particular people, to restore that relationship again. And the story continues on and on throughout all of the Hebrew scriptures into the New Testament as well. And this sense of belonging to God is captured in the words that get repeated oftentimes in covenant language. I will be your God and you will be my people. Um, In the calling integral to this covenant, though, is also the role that Israel was to be playing in drawing others to God along with their own sense of calling. The calling and blessing was for the purpose of God restoring a relationship with all the inhabitants of the earth. If you recall to Abraham and his descendants, God said, I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. God's covenant with Israel didn't begin and end with Israel. It had a much wider, greater purpose than that. There's a cartoon that someone has given me a card with a cartoon on the front. And it shows a crowd at the base of a mountain. And all looking up and about midway up the mountain is a man holding two tablets. And so we obviously know it's Moses with the Ten Commandments. And he's bringing them to the people from God. And in the foreground of this gathering are two men who've turned to each other. And one says to the other, so what's the takeaway? Okay, people don't laugh. I don't understand. I found that hysterical, okay? So, so as someone who delivers a message, when I hear people say, so after you're all done, it's, what was the takeaway? It's, there's nothing more insulting than to, to, to try to just distill everything down to one nub and say, okay, what do I really need to do about what I've just heard? And this wasn't inspirational, you know, um, as if it's all about me, you know, just what's in it for me. And that's kind of, um, wow, I was hoping that would go over better, especially at this service. I was counting on you guys. There wasn't a lot of laughter in the other two services either. Do it again. <laughs> yeah, that'll do it. That'll help. Okay. Um, the prophets and the message of the prophets is that Israel had misinterpreted the takeaway for a long time. They had missed the point altogether. They had come to believe that the covenant did begin and end with Israel. That God was only interested in serving them. And even when the law called for God's people to show kindness and care for the stranger in their midst, the non-Jewish person, they thought that that person could be blessed only and until they became part of the people of Israel, till they converted to Israel's faith. At best, Israel thought that the Gentiles would come to God by first becoming Jewish. And they didn't have to do anything about that because it was up to the Gentiles to, be, to find their way to God. Just the existence of Israel was sufficient in their mind. Do you know what it's like to be a stranger, to be an outsider, a person who does not belong or is not a member of the family or the group or the community? 
I had that painful experience once when uh, soon after, um, well, it wasn't soon after, but a time after Katie and I had been married, uh, we went back to visit her family in the East Coast, and there was a gathering of, of people who were there, and most of them had either gone to a prep school or gone on to an Ivy League school. And if you know anything about the East, um, that becomes very important in terms of your cultural identity. Now, mind you, she married someone from the Midwest who went to a small liberal arts college with the name Evangel, okay? You can't get more parochial and insignificant to an Ivy Leaguer than that. So can you imagine what happened when as we're greeting different people, someone says to me, and this was the standard line, what school did you go to? And of course they were waiting to hear you know, Brown, Harvard, Yale, Princeton. And I said, I knew better than to say the name, so I just said, oh, a small liberal arts college in the Midwest. I just sort of made it, you know. And then, then, they, then they, so they were still a little curious at that point, thinking, okay, maybe it's a significant small liberal arts college. <laughs> and they said, what's the name? And then I had to say, Evangel. And as soon as I did, it was like this. It was like, it wasn't even what? Or, you know, they just weren't interested. They weren't interested in where I went to school, therefore not interested in me. I was a stranger. And about after the third one, I told Katie, okay, I'm done. Uh, Can we go home now? Um, Fortunately, I'm married to someone who did go to a reputable school, and I tried to mention her instead. A stranger is someone unaccustomed or unacquainted with the patterns or norms of a, of a given cultural context. Katrina Taylor felt like a stranger when her family immigrated to the United States 27 years ago from a Russian-speaking, poverty-stricken country of then the USSR. She became a professional marriage and family therapist, and she tells of this experience in an article, Stranger in a Strange Land, on the experience of immigration. She entered the fifth grade with only three months left in the school year. So do you know how difficult it is to enter a new school, but to enter it when everybody's already made friends, they've already formed their groups, and now she's plopped down into the school six months in. She relates this struggle of being an immigrant child caught between two worlds and belonging to neither one. That's really uh, being a stranger. Here's what she said. Entering the U.S. was not unlike landing on an alien planet, a time of being surrounded by incomprehensible speech as foreign as a communication as the buzzing of bees. The particular feeling of aloneness that comes from being in the center of a group of children who all speak the same foreign-to-me language. And then after she did begin to learn English, she found out that they were mocking her and calling her communist. Throughout those formative years, being other was a painful and isolating experience. I pushed myself to assimilate to become American, to dress American, eat American, read and consume American culture. 
But then listen to these words. I hated my identity, especially my name. Now, do you know how hard that must, how, how painful that must be that you would hate your own name, your own sense of who you are? She talks about that in every life there's this quest for identity, this quest to belong, this need to answer the question, who am I and do I belong here? And she said, finally, through the process of assimilation and acculturation, she finally did answer those questions by saying, I am American, and I belong here. Yet that came at a cost, she said. I adapted by giving up a part of myself, my native language, my culture, my family background. I had to choose them as a loss. But in doing so, I came to realize that that experience of loss became an experience of transformation. Wow. All of us have been, have felt that sense of feeling strange, of being a stranger in some setting, in some context. It's a very difficult and uncomfortable place to be. It's really painful when it's supposed to be a place of community and love and acceptance and belonging as the body of Christ when someone feels that they're other. Paul's letter to his non-Jewish readers in Ephesus, I think, says something very similar. He says, as Gentiles, you were once far off, strangers to the covenants of God's promise. You were without hope, without God. But now you've been brought near. Now you've been encircled, you've been enfolded, you've been, a mem- you've been made a member of God's family. Now you have an opportunity to be in relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And what was true of those first century Ephesians is true of most every one of us who do not come from Jewish descent, who do not have that sense of covenant belonging from the beginning, and yet Through Christ, we have become part of God's covenant so that every time I do a memorial service of of someone of faith, I try to say their name and, and say the very next phrase, child of the covenant, because that's our sense of belonging, our sense of identity, our sense of being in God's sphere, in God's sphere of love and um and family. Whatever our experience of loss may have been in the past, it has become for us a transformation. We now have a new identity in Jesus Christ. We belong to a new community of faith, and we have a new sense of purpose. We no longer live for ourselves, but for him who gave his life for us and taught us how to be loving toward one another, to fulfill God's purpose. And we now become part of this unfolding drama, this story of God's promise offered to the world. I want to remind you that when Jesus gave his sermon in Nazareth, the town where he grew up, it was based on the reading of another servant prophecy from Isaiah, Isaiah 61. And he says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. He has anointed me and then goes on to talk about what his mission is going to be as that servant. And the subject of that proclamation is very similar to this one from Isaiah 42. 
referring to how God's favor was not only with Israel, but those who were outside the covenant people. Jesus, to illustrate what the meaning of that passage was, tells two incidents, two stories from Israel's history, but they aren't necessarily stories of pride and of, and of um, celebration in Nazareth. Jesus tells one during the time of Elijah, the other during the ministry of his successor, Elisha. During a time of drought in, in northern Israel and its neighbors, Elijah supplied food for a widow and her son who lived just beyond Israel's border in the nation or the country of Sidon, the land of Sidon. And then similarly, Elijah healed a Syrian army officer of leprosy. Despite the fact that Syria was Israel's enemy and notorious like Rome in its oppression of God's people. These acts of God's blessing occurred while Israelites suffering very similar conditions were passed over in order to minister to Gentiles. Could you imagine Jesus saying this is what it means for God's salvation to come? They weren't happy. In effect, by his words and actions, Jesus declared the time of fulfillment, the era of God's coming salvation. He claimed to represent Israel in himself, and his understanding of what it meant to be God's anointed, the Messiah, was that Israel, in the purpose of God as himself, was bringing about an end of suffering, a liberation from oppression, and salvation to all. So outraged were Jesus' hearers that day by his use of these illustrations that they drove him from the synagogue, drove him out of the city to a cliff where they were going to throw him over the edge. And those who went on our trip to Israel know exactly how steep and how severe that cliff is. The people of Jesus' time expected the Messiah to come And destroy Israel's enemies, not minister to them. The good fortune and blessing of the Messianic age belonged in their minds to Israel. It was their reward. While the day of vengeance and and of judgment was for Israel's enemies. But Jesus came to relieve all the needs of humanity throughout all the world. Unless we misconstrue the gospel, unless we don't get the um, um, okay, what was that thing I said earlier? The takeaway, unless we miss the takeaway. See, I can't even thank you. Someone's really paying attention. They're right there on the edge. Okay, they're waiting for the takeaway. Um, then perhaps we need to ask, what borders do we consider impassable or unacceptable for God's grace to cross over in Jesus' pursuit of those who are in need of God? Do we have limits as to who we think this gospel message is directed to or whom it's for? I'll close with this illustration. As many of you know, I... 
serve as a volunteer at Juvenile Hall where I'm one of uh, several spiritual advisors, Steve Frary from our church and Charlie Batesall also served there. And not too long ago, I was telling Katie when I came home, not every day is, that I go there is, is satisfying, but one particular day I came home, I was pretty excited because there's two young residents there who clearly are reading their Bible. They're growing in their faith. They read the daily bread as a devotional every day, and then they talk to me about what that week was like for them. And so I've just been so encouraged that, that they're, they're growing in their faith and they're trusting God with their lives. And then I told her, there's this third young man who, who also wants to be part of whatever we're doing, and so sometimes he gets allowed to join us in a separate room, and, and, but when he's there, he's distracting, he doesn't pay attention, he doesn't follow what the text is saying, he'll ask a question that's not related to what the Bible is saying, and I just think, ah, I just wish this kid wasn't here because he's, I mean, I'm making such good progress, I'm doing good with these other two kids, and, and so I'm telling Katie this thinking she's going to say, oh, that must be difficult, but instead she says, that must be the one whom God wants you to minister to. It's so hard when your spouse is right, you know? <laughs> um, well, it's hard for me. I know you're so gracious and loving, you, you don't think that. But, but I just, I thought, oh, man, did that just really get to me. Because I'm like, oh, I'm misrepresenting the gospel if I think it's not for him. And then I start thinking, what kind of hurdles and barriers does he have to cross in order to hear that God loves him? That Jesus would do anything for him. Because he doesn't believe it. It's too hard to believe because of what his life circumstance is. And, and if he's released, it's not a whole lot better for him. And yet he wants to know more. He wants to grow. He's being drawn to Christ. And I'm like, okay, Stay out of the room because we're making progress here. The other two. And it's like, no. That is the heart of the gospel. That's what I'm supposed to be doing. Is offering, uh, being a light so that the light shines on God. So he's drawn to God. And that's what each and every one of us are called to. That is the whole purpose of this meal that Jesus shares with us. He gives us life, not just for those who have faith, but for those who have yet to taste and see how good God is, how much God loves them. Let's prepare our hearts to receive this gift of grace and what it means for our world, as well as for each and every one of us.